Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by retired Coast Guard Vice Admiral Sandra Stowes. From icebreaker ships that deployed to Antarctica to becoming the first female superintendent of her alma mater at the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut, Admiral Stowes shares her experiences from 40 years of service in her soon-to-be-released book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. Sandy, thank you for making time for me today. You and I were recently introduced by former podcast guest Sarah Poticha, a West Point alumna and Army veteran. And I'm excited to have you on the podcast today because I just finished your awesome book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters, and I learned so much. Having been in the Air Force, my knowledge of the Coast Guard is unfortunately limited, but your book is very digestible, and you don't have to have a military background to appreciate the experiences you share of career highs and lows, challenges and achievements, and your advice and leadership lessons are really universal. Uh, before we go into that, share with us where you're from originally and what your experiences were like that led you to attend the Coast Guard Academy. Well, first, thank you, Melissa, for having me on your podcast today. I'm really honored to be here and share share some of the stories. So I was born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, and I attended Mount Hebron High School, and the Naval Academy was right down the road in Annapolis, Maryland. And in 1976, I was a junior in high school, and exactly at that same time, which is when you're looking for colleges to apply to, the service academies, including the Naval Academy, all were ordered to open their doors to women. And this was through the National Defense Authorization Act in 1975. So by 1976, the first women were entering the academies and a neighbor brought over the Baltimore Sun to show me. And uh, I was only 16 at the time. And it talked about how the Naval Academy was admitting women and they profiled the whole academy, not just the women part. I saw it as uh, an opportunity for adventure and and, uh, doing something that I always wanted to do, which was sail. So I was really excited to see that this new experience, which hadn't been available to me before, was now coming open. And I'd always liked um, doing something different. I had been raised with three brothers. Uh, I was the oldest child we were um, very close in age, so I sort of was raised with the boys and did the tomboy activities. So I had maybe an inclination towards the adventuresome side to start with before I even went to the academy. And I ended up going to the Coast Guard Academy. And how that came about was I applied to the Naval Academy because it sounded like such a great opportunity. And you had to get your congressional nomination. So I was going through that process. And my guidance counselor in high school said, hey, Sandy, you should really cast a wider net than just this one <laughs> opportunity. Yeah, and because I was just, I'm going to go to the Naval Academy. I just made up my mind. And I was kind of a stubborn young person, even though I was shy. But he had gotten a brochure in the mail from the Coast Guard Academy up in New London, Connecticut. And so we both poured over it and looked at it. And between the two of us, we decided that it was a small Navy, the Coast Guard. Well, of course, the Coast Guard's not a small Navy, but the boats are smaller in some cases. And so I applied there as what I thought was a backup. And the Coast Guard Academy is under a little bit different uh, title of the law than the other services academy, service academies. So we're under Title 14. And why that's important is because it's a direct admission. So I didn't have to go through a congressional nomination. So the Coast Guard Academy got right back to me and said, hey, we want you to come and be a cadet. And uh, my mother said, you know, you better take that bird in hand. And I had to send in a couple hundred dollars worth of a fee to to accept my um, uh, my offer. And I did that. And I never looked back. I just let the uh, Naval Academy slide. And I'm so thankful I did because when I got to the Coast Guard Academy, I found out, and I didn't find out right away, but I started to realize, um, as did all of us women there, that we had opportunities in the Coast Guard that the other services, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and the Marines didn't have because the Defense Department put down combat exclusion policies and laws that limited women from being able to serve on the front end, like in combat uh, ships and aircraft. 
the Coast Guard decided if we're going to accept women, we're not going to restrict them. And under Title 14, which comes to that law again, because we were at the time part of the Transportation Department, even though we're an armed force, we didn't impose combat exclusion rules. So when I was a third class cadet, the age of seven, um, 19, <laughs> I was down in the Caribbean on a 378 foot Coast Guard cutter, which is the size of a small frigate. And it was armed. It had the weapon systems like Harpoon and Sea Whiz. And I was serving on the pointy end of the spear. And I'm so glad I chose sort of by chance, because I didn't realize this at first, um, a college, a Coast Guard Academy that allowed me to achieve my full potential, didn't restrict me. And I really appreciated that more and more and more as the years went on. But that's just a little bit of, a, of the story of how I found out about the Coast Guard Academy and how I ended up going there. And um, I was in the third class of women. And by the time I arrived in the third class, we still only had 5% total of the cadet body, which is students, was women. So it was a, quite a minority. And I ended up being, <laughs> when I graduated in 1982, I ended up being one of the first women everywhere I went from there on because in the services, you promote kind of by time in service when you're an officer, you can't get ahead. You certainly can fall behind and not make it, but I was always going to be one of the first women. So I kind of learned to embrace that and roll with it and turn the attention onto my crew and the Coast Guard because that uh, followed me all my career. What did your family think of all this as you were progressing through the academy and entering the Coast Guard as an officer? Was anyone else in your family in the military prior to that? No, I had nobody in the military, which is sort of unusual because in the military where it's common knowledge that a lot of second, third generation people come in following in the footsteps of someone they know, but not in my case, had not even any friends or family in the, in the military for that matter. So uh, I was the first. And once again, <laughs> I couldn't outrun me in the first. My mom was very supportive. My dad was supportive. Like I said, I've been raised with three brothers. And the expectation is that we kids went off and made something of ourselves and uh, sort of expected to go to college. But um, I think my parents would have been happy if we kids had chosen any kind of profession. But it was very strongly encouraged. Were your brothers inspired to follow you into the military? No, no. And I was the oldest. So <laughs> my brother Jay was in Air Force, right down your alley, Melissa, Air Force ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps for a few months or a little bit of time at University of Maryland. But no, he didn't stay in and nobody else followed until my nephew. So my nephew and godson, the same person, Hunter, he's a lieutenant in the Coast Guard. But um, but my brothers, no, none of them followed me. So you graduate from the academy and your first assignment was on a ship. Yes, I was uh, on the glacier and polar icebreaker at a Long Beach, California that sailed to Antarctica within a few weeks of me reporting aboard. Antarctica, right. As I was reading your book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, I was also referencing YouTube videos to look at what polar icebreaking ships look like and how they operate. And I was fascinated. Again, uh, I'm not savvy with the Coast Guard and the various ships, but I have the benefit now of accessing the internet to do research. But as you mentioned, this is the early 80s. And did you know what your first assignment would look like in terms of what the job would demand of you and what the assignment would be like, uh, what you're getting yourself into? Or did you just arrive and figure it out? Well, <laughs> you you land and you make it happen. <laughs> you have four years of preparation at the Coast Guard Academy. And in your fourth year, it's a regular college, a small college equivalent for those who might not know. In your fourth year, your senior year, you do get more exposure to how to write the kind of correspondence you need to write and how to perform as a division officer. You've had four years of leadership experience, though, leading up to that. So you're better prepared than you think, but you don't have any pre-arrival training after you leave the academy. You go on some leave, and then you report right into your ship. So I came in, um, but I came in prepared enough because the Coast Guard looks at the two years that are new graduates, which are called ensigns. That's an O-1. The two years on the ship is two more years of training. You're not expected to be what we call in the military, a full up round. <laughs> you're expected to be still in training. So you're a junior officer, you're in charge of a division or two, and you learn more leadership and you learn your skills, your professional skills during those two years. 
So in your book, Jumping Towards Leadership, you say the difference between a person of character and a leader of character is action. Leaders of character navigate uncharted waters by steadying up and steering in the North Star of character. They hold true to their course, demonstrating the moral courage to make tough decisions, intervene, and engage to move an organization and its people towards success. In your experience as a leader of action, when all eyes were on you, often because of your gender, being the first woman in a high-profile position, how did you engage with people and what were your experiences like to build trust? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. One when I was junior, younger, and one when I was a little bit older. So when I was a little bit younger, I had had several years at sea before I ended up going to command my first ship. And that was a small icebreaker up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And I was the first woman to be assigned to that icebreaker, the first woman to command a ship on the Great Lakes. And once again, I couldn't escape being the first. But of course, the media liked it for a human interest story. So the spotlight was on me. So I knew from the day that I arrived, there was this massive spotlight on me and I didn't want that, but couldn't escape it. So I knew though that I had to prove myself. And I don't say that in a bad way because I think everybody coming to a new unit, a new job um, needs to prove themselves both to themselves and to their peers, the people who are working for them and to their superiors. So nobody gets a free um, ride on that. But I do think that when you're in the spotlight, it's a little <laughs> a little harder because there's more judgment. People have different expectations, and especially as the first woman. So I had learned throughout my career to uh, get out and walk around. And I knew that I needed to build trust and earn respect early on on that ship because the crew was you know, hearing they had a woman and they didn't really know what to expect, even though they all have mothers, sisters and wives, they still don't know what to expect by a woman boss in those days. Isn't that comical? But it was true. So I had to show them that I was a regular person and I had to build their trust um, in my competence and capability and that I cared about them. And so uh, one of the first things I did on that ship was I'll just take one example. In the evening, after everybody had left, I was staying late to get to know the ship and walk around. And so I went out of my office and went down into the engine room and there was one watchstander down there. It was a young man. He was probably only 19, a fireman, which means he was at the bottom of the totem pole for rank. And he was doing jobs like cleaning the engine room and standing watch. So I encountered Fireman Jones down there and I, he was sitting on the deck plate. So the floor of the engine room and he had something in his hand and I said, what are you doing, Fireman Jones? And he said, oh, ma'am, I'm just cleaning this oil filter. It's not important. And, and I said, well, and I squatted down and I said, well, why don't you show me a little bit about what you're doing? And so he perked up and he showed me a little bit about how you clean an oil filter, none of which I needed to know or remembered. <laughs> but I said to him, I said, you know, what you're doing there is so important. We couldn't get this ship underway if you weren't sitting there cleaning that oil filter. And then I went on about my rounds. And the next morning I come into work and I hear on my door, it's my engineer officer, who's the senior department head who directly reports to me in charge of the engine room. He says, well, I guess you don't need me anymore because you've got Fireman Jones telling you about the engine room. Well, Fireman Jones had woken up and he had made sure that when the crew all reported to work that he had let them know they were on the mess deck, which is where you eat. He made sure he let them know that the captain had said that he had the most important job on the ship. In the end, and the ship wasn't going to run without him cleaning that oil filter. So the good news was I had built trust and in, in, in the crew because I was caring about what they did, interested in their work, and telling them how much they mattered. But then I had forgotten or not, I neglected, I hadn't even thought to tell the my senior people, hey, my management style is I'm going to be walking around trying to catch your people doing something good. This is Ken Blanchard's one minute manager speaking, and I'm going to be um, trying to, you know, earn respect and build trust this way. I didn't tell them that. So I would surprise, I surprised my engineer because I had showed up on his, <laughs> in his territory without, after hours without telling him. <laughs> so I learned a couple of lessons. Yes, you've got to get out and walk around to build trust, um, especially when you're trying to um, maybe break down some barriers or, or perceptions like being the first and only woman on the ship. But you've also got to 
bring in the people you you need to support you and tell them about what kind of a leader you are. Don't let them try to figure it out and guess. And I had unintentionally done that. So I learned a big lesson from that on, on how to lead actively and uh, and do it right. Because you, oftentimes you, you strike out to try to do the right thing and you, you fail a little bit and you have to recover and adjust. But my, my engineer in the end, he was happy enough that I was looking out for finding his people doing something right. He just wanted to be part of that. So anyway, and I kept learning. So the second part of the story, if we have time, is that when I was much more senior at the top of my career, I was going into my what ended up being my last job in the Coast Guard. So by now I was an admiral. <laughs> and um, I had the same philosophy of this great big new enterprise. I was deputy commandant for mission support for the Coast Guard, which was half the Coast Guard which was about 17 or 18,000 people fell somewhere under my jurisdiction. And we had um, put in place before I reported to the job, we had spent several years modernizing the Coast Guard, bringing new mission support procedures and policies to the Coast Guard. And this wasn't easy, change is never easy. So we needed to build trust once again um, and earn respect of our customers who were all the operators. So I was providing engineering support, medical support, human resources support, information technology support, security, anything you can think of that was uh, related to mission support. And so before I even um, took the job on, I came down um, to Coast Guard headquarters where I was going to be assigned and talk with some of my senior people to come up with some thoughts on putting together a commander's intent plan before I got there. So I would once again, start strong with a plan and standards set because getting back to what your question was, having um, the moral courage to do the right thing, you've got to have standards first or there's nothing to um, measure by. So I was starting to set that up for my, my tour when I got there, my tour of duty. And I, I said to my people, I says, you know what? We need to um, work on customer support because people are a little bit worried about the new services we're providing, the way we're doing it. They don't trust us yet. And we have to um, provide better customer service. And they, you know, it was universal throughout the room. The few people that I had in there, they all pushed back and said, ma'am, we can't call them customers. If we call them customers, they'll think that they're going to get what they want. And we know that we have to give them what they need, not what they want. <laughs> and so I said, Ooh, wait a minute, we have a, a major impasse here because we need to be delivering the customer service that they want and that they need. It doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. But that was a cultural thing that we had to take on in the Coast Guard. And we set the standards and then we held ourselves accountable to them. And we failed a lot because um, when we were trying to deliver that mission support, like for instance, we're trying to deliver engine parts to the Coast Guard patrol boats in Guam. Well, even FedEx can't deliver to Guam in any reasonable time frame. So we had to find a, a way to, to push parts out there uh, in advance and have some uh, level and kinds of common parts stored out there on the ground so that they were immediately available to the customer. So we had to adapt our processes to meet the customer's needs and to build trust and earn respect. So that's just another um, way of looking at the same question. There's um, a lot of things that a leader has to do if they're going to lead with moral courage, and they all involve setting standards and then holding people to the standards, including yourself. A lot of times people will set standards and they'll make everybody else follow them except themselves. So you build trust and earn respect by setting standards and then holding people accountable. And there's a saying, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And a lot of times people want to just look past it because they don't want to have the tough face-to-face -to -face conversation to tell somebody, hey, you need to up your game or that was inappropriate, the, the, what you just said. People would rather just say, well, somebody else will call them on that. I'm just going to walk by. But the standard you walk by is a standard you accept. And I will leave the answer at that. One of the surprises in breaking ice and breaking glass is your admission of being an introvert, which I can relate to. 
And you share an experience about being up for a qualification, but being told by your supervisor that you were too quiet and not the John Wayne type of role model that people can often associate with being the standard of leadership or a desired characteristic of the military leader. But you earned the respect of your crew by demonstrating self-confidence. So my question is, is as an introvert, did that require you to step out of your comfort zone? And how did you express that as an introvert? So I definitely was an introvert my whole life and didn't know it, though. I was born in 1960 for context and and didn't um, realize I'd never taken a personality test that I was an introvert. I just knew I was shy. And those don't necessarily um, go together, but I was shy didn't have the greatest self-confidence and I was an introvert. So I had all those, for whatever reason, I was born that way, right? That's in, in my mind, that's real diversity. That's cognitive diversity, diversity of how you think and your personality. <laughs> so I had to, um, I had to deal with that and I had to learn how to find the power in that because I was competent and capable in many respects. I did well in school. And um, when I, Graduated from the Coast Guard Academy, went to my first ship. I was a new ensign, an officer, a deck watch officer on the glacier. We were heading to Antarctica on a patrol. So we got underway, and my job was to qualify to be driving the ship up on the bridge or the pilot house. And that involves um, giving helm commands to a helmsman. There's a lookout, there's watch standards that do different tasks up on the bridge. And you're it's a junior officer who is the person who's the deck watch officer in charge of leading that uh, that watch group. So I had been accustomed by nature of my personality and how I was raised with asking people to do something and trying to earn their trust through my competence. So I worked really hard. I learned how to drive the ship, how to use the radars and the radios. And I would just look at the bosun's mate of the watch and say, hey, boats, can you go do a round? It's time. I didn't have to bark an order at him. And I thought that earning respect and trust was more important than just using my position power. But my boss, he was from an older generation, and he expected to see a junior officer come and just be bastion of confidence, kind of just dictate terms to the crew and and bark orders. And he had used that analogy of John Wayne with a six gun in each hand. And for the listeners who don't know, and believe me, the younger people don't know who John Wayne is. He's just a Western hero uh, back in the older days who had a lot of confidence and barked orders. But I, so I tried, I, I, my boss took me and said, I'm not going to qualify you in your watch station until you can stand on the bridge and bark orders. But yet I was getting the job done. And so it was frustrating for me because he couldn't really tell me what I was doing wrong because I actually asked that. I said, well, where am I falling short? And he says, well, you're not, but you just need to park orders. So his mindset, his expectation of what a young officer should look like and sound like on the bridge, I wasn't fulfilling that. And I would say that women oftentimes are, we're different than men, not that all women are different from all men and and you know, vice versa. But I think we can be more collaborative and more um, interested in the benefit of the team and working as a team as opposed to having a dominating individual in charge. So I tried to be John Wayne. I did. I went back because my boss had told me I couldn't qualify unless I turned into John Wayne. Not really, but I'm just kind of making a joke out of it. So I tried and it wasn't me. And oh my gosh, anybody out there who's ever been in this position knows what I'm talking about. You, you know you want to do better at whatever you're doing, whether it's something personal or professional. And so you try to be what other people think you should be. And you are so stressed and you are never going to succeed. <laughs> and so I figured that out quickly. And I decided to keep on just being Sandy or Ensign Stowe's. And, you know, eventually it worked out. It was tough. My boss, though, at some point couldn't hold back any longer. I was doing a good job. I was getting recommendations from everybody else. And he could see that I was doing the right things. So he eventually qualified me. And I think he came to an understanding that maybe he had to open his aperture. But I also came to the understanding that I needed to understand where my boss was coming from and try to meet his expectations. And I did it on the performance side. So there was, I learned there's three P's to power. There's personal power, professional power, and then position power. And I always have gone to personal power and professional power. So 
your personality, how you get along with people, how you come across, whether you're empathetic, whether you um, care about them, all those things. And then your professional power, how you present yourself, how you prepare for the duties, um, how well you perform. All those things are what matter to me. And then the position power, I put that aside, like in a break glass in an emergency type of a thing. Because <laughs> why would you really need your position power in day-to-day activities if you've built your personal and professional power? So that's a lesson I would leave with people is you can overcome some of these challenges of perceptions by using your personal and professional power. And it might take some time and you might have to work with your supervisor or the people around you to um, build their trust and earn their respect and who you are. But being true to yourself and true to your own personal and professional power is what will get you to success in the long run. Right. Uh, you share another great experience in your book about how being a woman worked to your benefit in a challenging situation at sea when your crew radioed for you to assist during an inspection. Can you share that with the listeners? I can. So I reported aboard when I was a young junior officer, and I will tell you that it came upon a failure. So I'd been three years, my first three years in the Coast Guard, I was on polar icebreakers. The first one I just told you the story about, and then I got assigned to another one, the Polar Star. And then from that three years, I I put my application in to compete for command of a patrol boat. And I, I was hopeful that I would get this command, and there's only a few people picked. But I thought, I could, and I didn't. I failed. I failed to be selected. <laughs> My consolation prize was to be the operations officer on a, a ship down in Eureka, California, which is Redwood Country in Northern California. I was 25, and guys on the crew picked on me in a fun way. They said, oh, it's only lumberjacks and fishermen down there. You're going to hate it. Well, anyway, I went down there to be operations officer, which is third in command. And I was in charge of the boarding teams and all the operations of the ship. And we deployed from anywhere from Canada to Mexico. It was an awesome, an awesome assignment. (laughs) I didn't know that at first. And so I was the only woman on the ship when I reported out of 50 people, the first and only woman to be assigned. There was eventually one more junior officer um, assigned with me, but the men, the fishermen, and they were all men, and then all kinds of fishing going on on the Northern California, Washington, Oregon, California coast. And we would go on board fishing boats all the time. They'd never seen a woman come on board. And it's different when a woman comes on board a fishing boat as the senior boarding officer and says, hey, I need to see your weapons first um, because that was for officer safety. We always asked to see their guns and they all had guns for all kinds of reasons. But anyway, um, if a man challenges another man on, I want to see your guns. There's maybe a little bit of um, a challenge there, even if you don't mean it to be. But if a woman, (laughs) they're all too happy to show me their guns and, hey, do you want to see my fish next and my fish logs? And all the inspection stuff goes more smoothly because they've been at sea for weeks and they have a young woman come on board. (laughs) I mean, you just have to look at taking uh, what you could say would be a disadvantage and turning it into an advantage. And I was different. So that can be used to your advantage. And the story you're talking about is um, I was in charge of the boarding team. So sometimes I'd stay back on the ship and send a team out instead of going myself. And we sent a team out to a sailboat way off a couple hundred miles off the coast of Oregon. And it was a one man on it. And he did not want my boarding team coming aboard to do the the check. And um, he refused and you can't do that but you don't want to escalate the incident either. So the boarding team called back and said, ma'am, can you come over here? This guy won't let us on. So I went over or chugged over on the small boat, had a conversation with a guy. And I said, look, I said, I'm a sailor too. I said, I know you don't want your white decks marked up with black boots. I said, I promise we're going to be really, really careful and respect your property But I said, we've got to come on board and and do a courtesy inspection to ensure your safety. So I explained it to him. I didn't just tell him, it's the law. You don't have a choice. I'm coming aboard your boat. I just kind of, I know this is word vulnerability nowadays, but I just was a little vulnerable. And I said, look, you know, I, I, so I was softer with him, right? I didn't have to use the position power. I used the personal power. He let me on board. So the incident was de-escalated. 
So I enjoyed de-escalating incidents and I used um, the skills I had, emotional intelligence, if you want to call it that, but I do think it was partly being a woman and, and that being a novelty. And, and um, I think people were more inclined to listen to what I had to say. I could say it in a more personal way because maybe a man, maybe one of my guys wouldn't feel comfortable being vulnerable, but I had no problem with it. And people expected it as of a woman. So you could get away with being vulnerable because people thought, well, she's a woman. She's going to be a little softer in her thoughts. And um, But they didn't ever, I don't say that to say that they would think I'm soft in my enforcement. I still had the 45 caliber pistol on my hip. And But I, and what I'm trying to say is women can be strong and tough and yet approachable and have a high emotional intelligent quotient that empowers them to be even more effective in, in cases and male counterparts. Love that. Yeah. It's a great way. It's a great way to use your power. It is a superpower. Yes, I think so. Being different can be a superpower. So why look at it as a disadvantage? And I'm so sick of all this negativity you see about people are disadvantaged because they're different. I'm like, you know, I kind of said, no, I'm going to turn that on its ear and, and use it as a superpower. And it worked for me, so it doesn't work for everybody, but at least try it. Don't let people tell you, oh, because you're a woman or a minority, you're gonna have it harder and all that. Try to prove them wrong and, and try to go in there and, and um, use it as a superpower. I love that, yeah. And that leads into my next question, which is recognizing and seizing opportunities. In Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, you write about how, as a lieutenant, you thought getting assigned to a staff job would have ended your career, but it actually launched it forward in a way that you never considered. So what did you learn about staying open to opportunities and perhaps to the qualities that people saw in you that you hadn't yet recognized within yourself? That's a really good question, and I'll try to turn it to where it benefits your audience most. So I had been... An, been six years at sea. <laughs> and I know this is going to sound odd to some, but it was my comfort zone, even though I was cold, wet, hungry, tired, and scared much of the time that had become my comfort zone, right? I'd been on three years on polar icebreakers going from the Arctic to the Antarctic. I'd been three years in the Pacific Northwest on the boat I just talked about doing fishing boardings. And um, they wanted me to go back to head, go to headquarters, my very first staff assignment. And normally, Officers only get a couple of years at sea. They go back and forth. I had just been lucky and been able to stay at sea, but I also got overly comfortable with it. So the idea of going to a staff job made me think, yikes, um, I don't know how to do a desk job. I'm going to fail or it's going to be just something that has no visibility and I won't get promoted and all my hard work will be for nothing. So I was... Um, um, needlessly worried, but people are when they get a new job. So your symptoms are normal when you move or get promoted and you're starting something new and you're worried about it because you're leaving a comfort zone. So I reported into Coast Guard headquarters and I was in a staff job working on acquiring the next icebreaker that the Coast Guard was going to get. So working on the project, the acquisition project. And um, I had done a speech to the commandant, believe it or not, <laughs> I was so shy in those days, but I did my first big speech. It was in front of the commandant in Congress on why we needed a new icebreaker. And it was usually something done by the, the senior captain running the project, but I had just come off icebreaker. So they like, and I was young. So they said, you'll make a good impression because you'll be somebody who's speaking from experience instead of somebody who's never been on an icebreaker trying to explain it. So I got stuck with a wonderful life-changing opportunity of giving that speech. Well, then my detailer called me and said, hey, there's a new secretary of transportation, the service secretary for the Coast Guard at the time, and he wants a military aid. Would you like to go up and interview? And I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I, my project needs me because now I realized that I was playing an important role, <laughs> if you want to call it that, on this um, acquisition project. And so that was the end of that phone call. But the next day I got another call saying, let me rephrase that question. What time can you be up to interview with the secretary for this job? So I was being told that I was gonna go interview because they were looking for, I guess, good candidates. And so I went up there and I interviewed for the job as the secretary, the service secretary's military aide, and I was selected. But that was life-changing because 
I realized, talk about getting out of your comfort zone. I just gotten used to being on this project staff. I was the only woman on the project staff. And then I got called up to be the military aide to the new service secretary and didn't know anything about the job. So one of the first days I was there, I was only a lieutenant. So we're talking in my mid-20s. There's a weekly modal administrators meeting where all the top heads of all the modes, like the Federal Aviation Administration, the Federal Highways Administration, the U.S. Coast Guard, they all come in and they sit down, all these senior people. And so I was in that meeting because I was the secretary's military aide. And during that meeting, he looks at me and said, I want to introduce Lieutenant Follow-Up. This is Lieutenant Stowe's when she speaks, you're going to listen because she's speaking for me. And I'm like, I'm sinking in my chair because the Coast Guard service commandant, the guy in charge of the entire Coast Guard, like the CEO, his he, his eyes narrow. He focuses in on me. And I can tell he's thinking and sending me a subliminal message. We'll see about that. <laughs> and so the way the story goes is it was tough because the my own service chief didn't like the fact that a young lieutenant was that close to the service secretary. And they didn't realize the opportunity that was there. But I, mean, meanwhile, got to see a huge broad picture of the Coast Guard, the Transportation Department, and of course now the Coast Guard's in Department of Homeland Security. So I just wanna make that known that after 9-11, September 11th, the attacks, we moved over to the new Department of Homeland Security. But at the time we're in um, transportation. But so I got the, a chance to see the whole entire government from the top down working for Secretary Skinner. And I'd never envisioned that with going to a staff job. I thought it would be just something where you're sitting at a desk, you're going backwards um, in your career. And I realized that a lot of it's what I make it. A lot of it's the opportunity someone gives you and looking ahead and uh, looking at the bigger picture. A big lesson I learned was that even the most tiniest little innocuous looking opportunity can turn out to be the biggest thing that ever happened to you. So be very careful for your listeners not to turn a blind eye towards these opportunities that come to try to take as many of them as you can and then make turn them into the opportunities that they're capable of being. And you've got you to work at that. Yeah, I try to be very mindful of that, of the little opportunities and how they can be a turning point for virtually anything in life. And it's inspiring to hear experiences like yours. So thank you again for sharing that with the listeners and me. And with the pandemic and quarantining, I took the opportunity of being isolated as a way to connect with people. And that's how this podcast started. And I've always been questioned about the military and my service and uh, have had the comments that I don't look like a veteran. So I thought I'd use the podcast as a way to talk with other female vets and their military experience as a way to educate. And it's been a great opportunity to learn about new perspectives and experiences. It's awesome. That's a, I'm so glad you shared that story. I started a blog, you started a podcast. But another thing to follow on what you just said is even now, I retired as a vice admiral in the Coast Guard. That's um, um, an 09, same as a lieutenant general in the Air Force, your service. And my husband did retire from the Coast Guard. He retired um, as an 04. And that's a mid-grade officer. He'd come up through the ranks. He's my same age, but he'd started as enlisted and then went up to an officer program. But if we are out and about, like recently, I was over at the Fort Myer Gymnasium Fitness Center, and uh, we were talking to a, a guy, uh, and he um, kept looking at my husband like he was the principal and I was the spouse. And uh, it happens all the time that people think my husband is the admiral and I'm the, the non-serving spouse. Oh. <laughs> I laugh it off. I mean, you can get mad at it, bitter about it, but it's not just you from your service that you left in 2003. It's even a more senior person, woman. My husband gets looked at as the person who served. And you can take that bitterly and angrily, or you can just say, you know, people are just um, used to a certain mindset and that will change over time. But if any of us think it's just going to change because we demand a change today, <laughs> that's being unrealistic and it just leads to outrage and anger. So why not just help people to understand better yeah, right. and, mm -hmm. um, and be patient and realize that everything takes time. While you were attending the Coast Guard Academy, did you see yourself making the Coast Guard a career? Absolutely. So I 
amazing but true category. I mean, I never expected to graduate from the Coast Guard Academy, and I did. It was very hard. We didn't talk much about that, but, you know, people might look at me today as your host. What am I? (laughs) (laughs) As my guest. (laughs) And say, well, she had it easy. She just, she's an admiral. Wait a minute. What do you mean? It wasn't smooth sailing? Oh, no, it started out. (laughs) No, it was so hard when I started. And I didn't think I'd graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. I thought if I do, I'd like to sail on ships and spend 20 years in. That's your retirement point. And then maybe I would get out. But um, I ended up coming back to serve as a superintendent of that academy 33 years after I graduated. It was just like a, um, a dream of some kind, and I never aspired to it. Um, I was very, very honored and privileged to come back. And so when I was there, it was 5% women. I was so happy to be superintendent when we had 30, and then by the time I left, 38% women. I think the Coast Guard has um, a lot that attracts women. The Coast Guard Academy has a marine science major. So women coming in can see themselves doing something that protects the environment. And there's that difference between men and women where you have certainly men that are interested in marine science, but a lot of women are in that major. The Coast Guard offers the Marine Environmental Protection mission. So Women can see themselves serving at sea on a ship or in a helicopter or a plane, or they can see themselves in a um, role where they're working from shore, um, cleaning up uh, oil or keeping ports and waterways safe. So I think we've got great missions and the Coast Guard Academy is a great environment for women. So we were able to um, increase our numbers um, based on qualifications, not any kind of quotas or anything. So I was happy to see the caliber of young women we had coming in and such athletes were a small academy. So we have to uh, have cadets come in who are academically um, capable, who are fit, who can do sports, who some who can be in the band. <laughs> some years we might need a piccolo player. <laughs> so there's a lot of qualifications that go into bringing in a cadet corps, but thankfully we, um, were able to attract uh, a lot more women and minorities over the recent years. So that was um, a good feeling to come back and see so many positive changes in the 33 years since I'd been in. And uh, I find it interesting that there's still so many um, challenges and problems, but um, I can absolutely attest that everything is uh, multiple factors better Uh, for women and minorities at the academy, but people expect a lot more. So even though we've come a lot, long way, expectations have gone faster than progress. And maybe that's because of social media. We had had that discussion earlier before we started the podcast about the power of social media and how it changes expectations to instant gratification. And so people instantly want everything to be what their vision of right means, And um, that's just not reality. I was really proud of what we did, though, at the Academy, what's going on right now to continue advancing the organization um, so that we get the best young people in America coming there and so we can graduate leaders of character and service to our nation. Right. And in that, since you were among the first women to graduate from the Coast Guard Academy and hold a very visible leadership position, you often didn't have mentors who, quote unquote, looked like you, uh, other women, but you were mentored by men who were dedicated to helping you succeed as an officer, not just as a female officer. How did mentorship nurture your career? And do you remember when people sought you out for career guidance and mentorship? That's a really good question because mentoring is so important. And first of all, all my mentors were men. Um, So I want to give a little bit of advice on mentoring. There's um, a little ditty I've got. It's the three mentoring misperceptions. And one is that mentors must look like you. And I never had a mentor that looked like me. My mentors were all men who wanted to help a woman Uh, succeed. And there were plenty of those. Even back in the 1980s, there were plenty of men who wanted to help me succeed. And quite frankly, in those days, the few women who were senior weren't (laughs) as interested in helping a woman succeed. It was maybe seen as competition or something, but there was an odd element uh, dynamic there that I experienced 
And the discrimination from other women was far worse than that from any that I might've had from men. So my mentors were all men. And don't let anyone tell you that your mentor has to look like you. And in fact, mentors who don't look like you bring a diverse perspective that will strengthen you. So if you're a young woman, I would advise look for a, a man to mentor you in addition to looking for women and look for somebody from the opposite um, race or ethnicity, different variety of mentors who bring a different perspective or a different personality type. If you're an introvert, look for an extrovert. And then another myth, second myth is um, mentors have to be senior to you. And I've had a couple of mentors a few mentors maybe that are, um, they're not senior to me, they're junior in rank, but they have experience beyond what I've got. So I've had aides, which are much junior to me, young women, young men who are my military aides who were more experienced in some areas than I was, (laughs) who mentored me, so to speak. There's lots of near peer mentoring. So don't constrain yourself to a senior mentor. I've seen people who think that if they're young, they want to get the oldest, most senior person they can to mentor them. That person's likely going to be the wrong person to mentor you because they're so removed from what you need to know. And then the third mentoring myth is a mentor will make you successful. And I heard someone say once I was at a big mentoring convention, like an affinity group convention where there was mentoring breakout sessions. And I heard some senior person leading a group of younger people say, you need to find a mentor and then get on the elevator with them and ride it to the top. And I'm like, oh, I could die here and something like that because it couldn't be anything more far from the truth. You don't want to hitch your wagon to somebody and expect them to pull you across the finish line to success. You need to create your own fate and make your own career. And you need a mentor to um, be someone you can go to to ask advice when it's needed or desired. Um, someone who can be there to steer you straight or keep you accountable if you're if you're drifting. So there's some misperceptions or myths that I like to bust because there's so much uh, out there about mentoring now. So I'll kind of start with that. And I just will say that I was fortunate to have great mentors. Some of them reached down to me, but I also reached up to them. So I would offer, please make sure that if you're senior, you're reaching down, looking for mentors, mentees. And if you're junior that you're reaching up. So a lot of people sit there, they're more junior, they're middle grade, often maybe say women, and no one um, offers to mentor them. So they're like, well, they complain. They say, well, nobody is, I'm not included. And I'm like, well, how hard did you try (laughs) to ask a busy person if they would um, mentor you? I mean, if you just sit there expecting people to all come to you, (laughs) that's not really the way you get ahead in the world. You get ahead by targeting in on people you might want to help you and going and asking them. And maybe they'll say no, but probably not. (laughs) People all want to help. Um, So yes, uh, women would ask me and I've been privileged to have some mentees at all levels, love those relationships. Um, Everything from younger people up to older people that are kind of near peer, but I always take the younger ones and I offer them, please get more mentors because I'm more senior and I have one perspective. So I always tell people, get three mentors maybe, or four, several, whatever the right number is. And in the military and the C service, we have a thing um, at sea called taking a fix. So you put down lines of position to see where your ship is in the ocean. And it takes like three lines of position to get a good fix of where you are. So if you have three or so different mentors whose voices you're going to for advice, you're going to get a good sense of um, direction. So I would offer that you don't want to just have one mentor, regardless of how influential you think that person is. And um, I will tell you, though, that when I was superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy in that big senior position, that um, I had women aides. It happened that way. Uh, it wasn't that I was looking for just a woman to be my aide, but I had my of the three different military aides there. They were all women. And their office was somewhat next to me, pretty much like two doors down. There were lines of women cadets wanting to be mentored by my my lieutenant aide, who was only about five years, six years senior to them. So kind of more near peer. There was nobody lined up at my door to be mentored by the superintendent. So that's why I advocate for kind of more near peer mentoring, because 
my aides, those young cadet females, women, could see themselves being my aide five years on. They could not see themselves being a, an 08 admiral. That was just a stretch too far because they were just at a lower place. So the idea that you should look for different mentors at different um, levels in the organization is very important because you might find yourself um, getting a um, senior mentor who really can't relate to what you what your needs are and, and what your career path should be at that stage of your career. Sandy, you have been so generous with your time with me today and with your career longevity and your upcoming book, there's so much more to discuss. So I encourage everyone to pre-order Sandy's book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters, and also signing up for her free blog. Your website is sandrastoes.com. That's Sandra s-t-o-s-z.com. Uh, and I'll link all that information into the podcast, but I'll wrap up our conversation today with a question I like to ask all my guests. If a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking about joining the military, what would you say to her? Absolutely. And I wouldn't overanalyze it. So if you're even thinking about the military, you should pursue it, ask questions, reach out, look at what you might be interested in doing. There is so much to the military. Um, there's the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Space Force. Um, there's the enlisted route. There's the officer route. There's the National Guard. There's the reserves. It's really complicated. So I would research and look at what might interest you and what you would want to do for um, what, what, what you'd be passionate about doing. So uh, the Coast Guard's got different missions than the Space Force, but all of it's going to teach you how to be a leader of character. And you don't have to stay for a full career like I did. Um, people do an enlistment of two, four, six years, whatever it might be. You can go to an academy, do your five years obligated service. There's all kinds of exit points. I've never met anybody ever who did just a little bit of service as an enlisted or an officer, maybe didn't even finish the academy, who regretted it. Everybody I've ever talked to is glad for the service they did. Some of them wish they hadn't got out. Some of them are happy to have gotten out, but they never regret the service. So that's what I would say. Yes, join. Don't listen to all the, the um, negative diatribe you see on people who are unhappy or always complaining about something about the military, or maybe women don't have all the opportunity. They have a lot of opportunity. Um, there's a lot being done to um, increase accessibility and to make the services, all of them better for everybody. But right now there's probably no place better <laughs> to work in my humble opinion than one of the US Armed Forces. There's so many um, core values that we're guided by, lead, leading with character, um, uh, equal opportunity. You're, you are paid the same. You're, you're given every opportunity no matter what your race, gender, or creed, or whatever factors make you different. In fact, the difference is valued. Yeah, is there gonna be, someone might say listening, yeah, but I heard this. Well, sure, if you look close enough, you're gonna find an incident somewhere for anything, especially now when all someone has to do is post something on social media and it's gone out to everywhere. But if you look through all that and look at the, if you're looking on the positive side, there's a lot to love about serving and you can serve for as long or as short as you want, and you'll come out a better person and a better leader for it. Love all that. Sandy, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Melissa, for having me. It was a privilege being here for you and your listeners. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.